Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you this morning on another sunshiny day. We're grateful for that. Let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in need of what only you can do for us. So we pray that you would come and minister to us by your spirit as we open your word and look to it. As we consider your word today, we pray that you would show us very clearly yourself and that you would show us ourselves as we really are and that you would show us Christ our Savior and that as we behold him in your word that we would be transformed as you promise us from one degree of glory to another that you would continue to conform us into his image. Stir us up, we pray, to love for one another and love toward you and stir us up to good works. We pray you would use your word to sustain and strengthen and confirm our faith in Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Friends, with respect to the Bible, it has been said by many people before me that the main things in Scripture are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Meaning that the most important things in Scripture are very clear and very simple and very straightforward. And that the things that are very clear and very straightforward are the most important things. There is no secret code or anything like that that we need in order to interpret God's word. We definitely, we need his spirit because these things are spiritually discerned. But God's word is clear as we open it and his spirit ministers. It is on the one hand easy to understand and the gospel is a message that we receive as children. At the same time, while the Bible is clear and simple, Jesus is also clear that he gives pastors and teachers to the church for our benefit. And there is a history of sound teaching, a history of sound doctrine that has existed in the church for 2,000 years. This history of sound teaching can be traced back all the way to the apostles. And we are helped by saints who have gone before us in helping us understand Scripture. What we want to do here at CBC is build our theology on the things that are very clear in Scripture and then use those clear things to help us understand the things that are less clear. And we've got in our text today from John's Gospel, we've got some very clear, very important stuff to consider. Questions such as this will be answered. How is it that we are saved? And I don't want to assume too much. When I ask that question, how are we saved? The reality underneath that question is that we are sinners. And God is holy. He's righteous. He will administer perfect justice against sin. So that's a problem for us as sinful people. How is it that we are reconciled to a holy God? Also, when we ask that question, how are we saved? We're thinking about the fact that because of sin, we are dying. We're perishing. How is it that we, as perishing people, could ever have eternal life? We'll also think about this question today from our text. How should we understand our Bibles? How should we understand Scripture? Jesus is going to help us in learning how to better read and understand his word. And then also, finally, this question, can we be certain of our salvation? Can we 
know that we know that we know that we will be with God forever. Having been reconciled to him, can we be sure that we will make it, that we'll endure, that we will be counted amongst the righteous at the end of history? If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 6 and verse 22. If you don't have a a hard copy of the scripture in front of you, you could use an app on your phone. We'll be looking at the English Standard Version today, the ESV. So if you have the ESV Bible app, that will serve you well. We're going to be looking today at John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. A little bit of context as you're making your way to that passage. At the beginning of John 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000 people, a large crowd. He has fed them with miraculous bread from heaven. And then immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has walked on water across the Sea of Galilee. So John has written to us of a miraculous water crossing and the miraculous feeding of an assembly of people. All of this at the time of the Passover. And as we think about often as a church, when we see things like that, our minds should be going back to the Old Testament. Like what's going on here? We should be thinking in this context of God's work in the Exodus, how he delivered his people from bondage in Egypt and how he provided for his people with bread from heaven as they wandered in the wilderness. In our text today, Jesus has a few things to say about the true bread that comes from heaven that gives life to the world. So let's look now to John 6, verses 22 to 40, and listen as I read God's word for us. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for us. They're mostly just kind of handles for us to put on the text as we make our way through it. The first point will be like shockingly brief, and the fourth one will be pretty long, so just to prepare you for that. Point number one, let's just consider briefly together the setting, the setting of this conversation and this interchange. In verses 22 to 24, we see that it's the day after Jesus has fed the 5,000, after he has fed the crowd. The people are trying to figure out where Jesus is. They're reasoning with each other. There was only one boat. Jesus didn't get in it with the disciples, but he's not here. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee looking for him. They go to Capernaum. And then in verse 25, they find Jesus. And they ask him, teacher, when did you come here? So now a dialogue is going to ensue. Point number two, or handle number two, we'll entitle it The Work of God. The Work of God. We're going to look at verses 26 to 29 for just a moment together. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus, as he tends to do, gets right to the heart of the matter. Jesus says effectively to the crowd, you're seeking me because you got full on the bread that I fed you yesterday. You want more food. From, from me. You want me to, to do what I did for you again, and that's why you're here. And then in verse 27, he exhorts them. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, earthly food, but rather labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which, he says, the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, the Son of Man will give you this food, and he has authority to do so from God the Father. Verse 28, the crowd asks him, okay, you tell us to labor not for the food that perishes. You tell us to labor for food that will endure to eternal life. So what do we need to do? What must we do to be doing the works of God, they ask, in verse 28. What labor must we be doing, Jesus? What work must we do in order to get this food that endures to eternal life? Then Jesus answers them in verse 29. This is significant, to say the least. He answers them, this is the work of God. Here's the work you need to do. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Look at verse 27 again. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. How do you do what Jesus is prescribing? How do you not labor for the food that perishes, but rather how do you labor for the food that endures to eternal life? Christ's answer is simple. Believe in me. Believe in me. What is the thing above all other things for us to do in order to be living in accord with the revealed will of God? The answer is to believe in Christ, to trust him, to cast our hope upon him. 
Certainly there are plenty of other things that God tells us in his word, but none compared to this thing. After all, without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. The first and greatest application from any passage of Scripture is always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first and greatest application from any passage of Scripture is trust Christ, hope in Jesus. The fundamental battle, brothers and sisters, of the Christian life is always the fight for faith. It is always the battle to believe God's word. It is always the battle to trust Christ when sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, to simply trust him. It is the battle to believe that what God says in his word about you is true, even when you don't feel like it's true. It's the battle to believe that God will keep all of his promises when it feels like the world is unraveling around you and your own heart and your own mind is all over the place. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Point number three, handle number three. The crowd demands a sign. The crowd demands a sign from Jesus in verses 30 and 31. So you see that in the text. It's very simple. The crowd asks him, okay, well, you're saying all this stuff, Jesus, but what sign do you do? What work do you perform so that we might know that you're legit and that we might believe in you? That's effectively their question. And then they, they tell Jesus, like, after all, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That was pretty remarkable. You know, what sign do you do, Jesus, that would compare to that in any way so that we might believe in you? Now, the irony, I trust you sense this, the irony is thick here, very thick. Jesus has literally, in their presence, in front of their own eyes, Jesus has literally just fed thousands of people with, like, miracle bread. Long before we had Ezekiel bread over there at Ingalls. I mean, this was the thing, right? Jesus fed them with miracle bread from heaven, and he has just walked across the Sea of Galilee. And yet the crowd says, hey, bro, what sign do you do? What work do you perform? that we might believe in you. Remember, Jesus is doing things like God did in the Exodus. He is doing signs that point back to the Exodus, which, remember, is the at this point in time, is the greatest work of deliverance up to this point in redemptive history. He's doing all kinds of stuff that is like, hey, the God of the Exodus is here. He has shown up, Jesus has, to accomplish an even greater exodus on behalf of God's people to save them, not from bondage to some geopolitical power, but to save them from bondage to sin, death, and Satan. That's what he's come to do. He is performing signs to make that work of deliverance clear. But yet the crowd says to him, show us a sign, man, that we might believe in you. Point number four. And this will be by far our our longest one. We'll entitle point number four, the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. In verses 32 to 36, Jesus is going to teach the crowd about the manna that their fathers ate and what was really going on with it. And he's going to teach them about the true bread from heaven. 
In verses 32 and 33, Jesus tells the crowd, it wasn't Moses who gave your father's bread, because that's the implication here. Moses, Jesus, Moses did a lot of incredible stuff. Moses performed a lot of remarkable signs. And so we believe in what Moses has written and what Moses did. So Jesus is like, look, it was not Moses who did that. It was God who gave you, gave your fathers, I should say, bread from heaven. It was my father who did that. And now he says, the father is giving you true bread from heaven because the true bread that comes down from heaven is the one who comes to give life to the world. And of course, he's talking about himself. The crowd in verse 34 asks him for that bread. They say, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus very clearly in verse 35 responds to them. He says, I am the bread of life. I am this bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world. I'm him. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Your cravings will be satisfied in every way that matters. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. That sounds familiar. That sounds just like what he had said to the woman at the well that we considered last week together. Whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never thirst again forever. Like into the age forever will never be thirsty again. But then in verse 36, Jesus says to the crowd, but I've told you that you have seen me. I've told you who I am. Told you what I'm here to do. And yet you don't believe. So friends, from verses 32 to 36, it's very clear, as I've already stated, that the true bread from heaven is Jesus himself. Jesus is given by the Father. Jesus gives life to the world, meaning that he is the world's Savior. We often talk about reading and understanding our Bibles through the lens of redemptive history, right? Through the lens of redemptive history with Jesus at the center. Well, Jesus in this text gives us an object lesson in how to do that. He gives us an object lesson in how to understand the scripture with respect to God feeding his people with manna in the wilderness in Exodus and in Numbers, right? We read about that miraculous work of God in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, and many other books in the Old Testament refer back to what God had done in feeding his people with manna, with bread from heaven. You may be familiar with how it would go down. There would be this fine, like, dust flower on the ground every morning. It almost looked like dew covering the ground, and then the people would take it and make it into food. God provided food for them in the wilderness. He would give them just enough for one day, and then leading into the Sabbath day, he would give them two days' worth so that they would not have to work on the Sabbath day but could prepare food for two days. He continues to provide this bread from heaven as his people are sojourning in the wilderness. Question for us as we think about God's word in its entirety. What was the point of the manna? What was the point that God was making with the manna? The point above all other points, right? Certainly, God's provision for his people is in view, no doubt. God is a provider. Absolutely is clear in how he provided manna. Certainly, God was teaching his people to trust him. I'm giving you enough for today. Trust me that there will be provision for tomorrow. Certainly, that's true. But above all other things, 
I would suggest that the manna in the wilderness was about Christ. It was about Christ. So think about this. The heavenly bread that sustained the lives of God's people as they were sojourning in the wilderness, the manna, pointed to the true bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, who would come to give life to his people, who would come to sustain the lives of his people as they were sojourning toward the celestial city. Christ is the true bread from heaven. This is how Jesus understood the Bible. This is how he understood all of the scripture that had been written before he came. He says in John chapter 5, the scriptures bear witness about me. Also in John chapter 5, he says very explicitly, Moses wrote about me. Where exactly? Where would we look? Well, a whole bunch of places, including when Moses wrote about the manna. Because Jesus in this text today is saying, that heavenly bread that my father gave you was something. But now the true bread that comes from heaven is here. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, Moses and all the prophets wrote about me, about my suffering and my glory. And so when we understand our Bibles this way, friends, we're taking our cue from Christ and from the apostles because they too understood scripture this way. Let's look at verses 37 to 40 together. In those verses, we're given a wonderful picture of salvation and a wonderful picture of the security that we have in Christ. And we're told that all of this, salvation by faith in Christ and our eternal security, is all the Father's will. Sometimes we get worked up, in the American church anyway, about God's will. What's God's will? Well, Jesus, God the Son, is going to tell us very clearly what the will of the Father is, even in these verses, and it's wonderful. Let's look at them together. Jesus says in verse 36, he's just told the crowd, I've told you who I am, but you don't believe in me. But then these words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me. There are no dropouts in this equation. And when Jesus says that they will come to me, that is in faith. And whoever comes to me, that is in faith, I will never cast out. Question, does Jesus ever turn away people who come to him in faith for salvation? The biblical answer is no, he does not. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we see in the text why it is that people come to Jesus in faith in the first place. It's because God the Father has done that. God the Father has acted in sovereign grace and has given people to his son. Sovereign grace is all over the scripture. Jesus goes on in verse 38. He says, I've come down from heaven to do my father's will. He doesn't come, he says, to do his own will, but to do his father's will. And according to Jesus, here is the father's will, beginning in verse 39. That I should lose nothing, he says, of all that he has given me. That is, I should lose none of the people he's given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. All those who come to me because of the Father's grace 
First of all, I'll never cast them out. I'll never turn them away. And as they've come to me and they are trusting in me, I will see to it that none of them are ever lost. And I will be certain to raise them up on the last day. He goes on in verse 40. Here is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on me and believes in me should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. All those who trust in me, he says, I'll raise them up. It is the will of God the Father that everyone who believes, everyone who believes in Christ would have eternal life and be resurrected to be with him forever. This is, as Jesus has already said in the text, the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, is not some slogan that was birthed in the Reformation. Salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone is not man's idea. It's quite clearly the message of Scripture. Man, by the way, would never come up with such a thing. We would never come up with such a message of scandalous grace and mercy, atonement and absolution and forgiveness and righteousness counted to sinners. We would never come up with such a thing. This has always been the plan of God to save His people through faith in His Son. Praise be to His name. So saints, as you listen to God's word and as you listen to me speak even, let this wash over you. That you came to faith in Christ because God the Father did that for you. It wasn't that you or wasn't that I was enlightened, that we were smarter than other people, less damaged by sin, less corrupted by sin than other people, no way. It was because God, purely out of grace, did a work by His Spirit in our hearts, and we have trusted His Son. Saints, let this wash over you, that Jesus will never cast you out. You've come to Him in faith, by sovereign grace, and you'll never be turned away. Jesus always does His Father's will. We may fail to obey God's word. Not so with Jesus. Always perfectly does the Father's will. And it is the Father's will that Jesus would not lose you, but that he would raise you up on the last day. It is also the Father's will that you have eternal life and that you be resurrected by virtue of the fact that you have looked upon his Son and believed in Him. The Father has willed your salvation, and the Son has accomplished it. And He has you, and you're safe in Him. Now that is something to sing about. And we did. We sung about that earlier. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. Those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. We sung earlier, Mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. Christ has paid for every failing. 
I am His forevermore. Two things are certain for you and for me today. One, we will fail to meet God's righteous standard because we're sinners. Two, Christ has paid for every failing and you're His. And we're going to sing around the Lord's table in just a minute these words. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So parting question for us to consider. How do we know that we will be finally saved? How do we know? Not just, I hope I will be. How do we know? People offer a number of answers to that question, even in the church. My, my answer, at least based on Scripture, passages like this, my answer is simple, and you judge for yourself. I think the answer to that question, how do we know we'll be finally saved? Jesus. Christ is the answer to that question. Not only is it the answer that I understand, at least to be biblical, it's the only one that's solid rock. Because any other answer that has anything to do with you is sinking sand. You will have no foothold there. If you're looking within, there's no hope. Looking without to Christ and His righteousness is solid rock. We will be finally saved, brothers and sisters, because our salvation depends upon Christ's sufficiency and ability to save us. And Jesus never fails, ever. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray for you to work in our hearts, in our minds. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would work in us, in our inner being, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ for us. We pray that as we have considered Christ this morning, as we have considered his power, his sufficiency and ability to save as we have considered his grace, his mercy and his work in our place. We pray that we would be completely satisfied in him and that we would look to nothing else. We pray for you to continue to minister to us as we come to your table, to remember what Christ has done, to proclaim his death until he comes and to receive the merits of Christ by faith. Continue to do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.